Hello and welcome to another episode of the Branching Factor podcast. Here it is, we're in episode two. We're still, we're kind of just left the ground floor, we're heading up the elevator, but it's still early enough you can get in and join us in, join in on all the fun. I am your host, Tommy Thompson, and today uh, we have got another one of our wonderful quartet of co-hosts coming in to hang out with us on the show. Please give a warm welcome to Quang. Quang is here. Hello there. Uh, great doing? to be here. Yes. Very well. Oh, so yeah, Quang for for the wider world who's maybe not familiar with his work, Quang is the um, I guess are you the owner director I guess of Asobitech, uh, which founder director owner wear all the hats. You wearing all the hats. Yes. It's only so many hats you can put on one head, but you you do it, and I'm impressed. So and Asobitech is a micro game studio, so you guys make indie games, but often very very small in, in scope and in scale, but. Doesn't mean they're not fun. I, in fact, I tend to find they're the opposite. Um, you tend to you you figure out just distilling all the fun into as little a package as possible, um, which I think might make your life a little easier presenting at events. Sometimes I don't know. Maybe you've had better experiences than I've had um, over the years. Uh, so yeah, just to kind of quickly fill everyone in, if you're not familiar, that the Branching Factor it's a gaming podcast where. Myself, I am the voice of the AI and Games YouTube channel, and I've always spoke a lot about artificial intelligence in the context of the games industry and games research. But for this podcast, I wanted to bring in uh, voices that I know and I'm familiar with who have worked in the games industry in different shapes and styles and forms, but also work in games research. And so, for example, in our first episode, we had George Osborne come and join us. George uh, was giving a talk on the sort of the state of the industry from his perspective. And so today we're going in a completely different direction, particularly leaning on Quang's experiences working over in running a micro game studio and the challenges that that can present. And uh, yeah, it's all really about trying to demystify all things games. That's really what we're, we're all about here at the podcast, discussing it in a moderately intelligent and hopefully entertaining way as well. And so before we get into the swing of things, a huge shout out, of course, to our supporters over on Patreon. Uh, the Branching Factor podcast is supported thanks to the AI and Games Patreon. So if you're interested in getting a chance to listen to this show ad-free, submit questions through our private channel on the Discord server, and also some exclusive content, head on over to aiandgames.com forward slash Patreon. All right, there we go. I've, 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 uh, I've, I've paid the bills. We're good to go. What have you been up to, man? How's things? Oh, it's a uh, it's been a roller coaster of a ride. Uh, so we're now on our second Game Boy game for our studio. Um, I, I scaled up. Uh, we got a, a an artist in full time. We got a producer in full time, and um, an, an amazing uh, audio guy to do the music for the game on, on the Game Boy. Uh, then we got a publisher involved. Uh, believe it or not, there are multiple publishers doing Game Boy publishing. Oh, wow. It's insane in 2022. Your first game was on, was your first game, did you kickstart it or was it like a similar crowdfunding? I'm trying to remember. <clears throat> it was, a, yeah, it was, so we did it on pre-order from our website. Um, right. So I, I, I leaned heavily on my uh, community as a whole uh, and we did it through my own website. So uh, it was all self-done. I published it myself. I manufactured it myself. I got the cartridges, the, the box and the manuals and put it all together. And it was all very much just me. That's, that sounds like a lot of work, just trying to print all that and then actually sitting manually putting all those together. Yeah, it was uh, a lot more work than I wanted to do. So hence <laughs> where uh, we went with a publisher for our second Game Boy game. 
That's crazy. I like I had I, I had no idea actually that I thought you'd actually got it self-funded again, much like the first one. So I wasn't aware that there's like this growing number. Is it like an increasing number of publishers that are invested in this sort of thing and trying to ship these kind of more vintage games on these older consoles? Yeah, I, I you know when I first looked at it, I think there was one one or two publishers that were doing physical releases of Game Boy games. But now, at my last check, it's like eight at least I know of oh, wow. that will take a game and physically manufacture it and, and distribute it that way. That is nuts. Absolutely crazy. Um, no, but it's, it's also awesome because it means it's hopefully easier for yourself to go through that process again and again. Um, and so I was going to say, like, you were at, we, we caught up at Develop um, in yeah. the summer. And for those not familiar, Develop is a games industry conference that runs in the UK. It runs down in Brighton, right on the south southernmost coast of England. And... Um, that's the first time we'd seen each other since pre-pandemic lockdowns and all that jazz. Because um, you were, I gave a talk there um, talking about AI and games. Funnily enough, and and yourself, you were actually in the in the. Uh, I think you were in the second row. No, front row. Was your front row? I can't. You were definitely down the front. You you were because I I came over and hugged you. I was like, <laughs> oh my god, because I was so excited to see yourself and um, a friend of the show, Nickel Hunt, as well, another indie developer from the UK. Um, you were both there and it was just like, oh my God, this is so exciting because I haven't seen these guys in so long. <clears throat> but I, I don't remember much else of that week because it was uncomfortably hot and none of the air conditioning was running. <laughs> uh, but you, so what else were you up to at the, at Develop? Because you also run the, the Game Maker Meetup as well. Is that yeah. right? Indeed. So we run a monthly meetup where um, we have uh, speakers talk and two small talks uh, to do game development. Uh, specifically, it was geared towards the game maker engine. Uh, we, you know, there's already talks, um, meetups already for Unity and Unreal. I found there were no talks or meetups for game maker, so I looked to make that change and um, do something for the community and put together these monthly meetups. So we were doing one that month uh, in tandem with Develop. So uh, we knew lots of developers will be in the area. So uh, let's make the meetup there, and it was a great event. Yeah, like it's it's kind of common practice, I think. Like, develop is very similar, I guess, to like GDC, um, in San Francisco, where a lot of people go to Brighton to be in the space around develop. Although a lot of people don't actually go to develop itself because, well, for one thing, it's expensive, and you know, a lot of the talks aren't necessarily relevant to everybody um i know speaking myself i actually had a complimentary pass because i was a speaker i only went to a hand i think maybe the circumstances would have been different were it not for the fact i was melting into my chair that maybe i would have went to more talks but um certainly it's not for everyone but you know you get to hang out with other people and just generally be in the space and um it's nice to catch up with game devs because I feel bad because uh, was it you went was it you were at EGX I think I didn't go to EGX I'm still this 2023 I think is going to be the year I finally start going back to public facing events again how, how was that then uh, EGX was great um, we did EGX <coughs> the year before as well and uh, EGX the year before was very much like a half size event that was still mm. gearing up to it but the one that just went um, was felt more like a full size. Maybe I would say seventy five percent. You know, Edex is almost getting there. The it's just waiting for the I guess the big players to come back, Nintendo and Sony and Xbox and the rest of them need to come back. But it did feel very much like they were gearing back up to a full size event. And as you said, it's it's great to be around 
uh, other developers see on new games. They had a really strong indie presence this year, which was wonderful to see. And I was there to do uh, a couple of talks, which was good to be. Yeah, and uh, so, uh, uh, but critically, you weren't showing anything, which I think is, that's bizarre to me on, on, a, on a kind of crazy level, because, um, so, um, I guess to kind of explain a little bit to the audience, like, we met by virtue of, you, you have been working, you've worked on several games in the time that I've known you, um, and you're always out at events showing your games off. Um, I was out on tour with uh, Sure Footing, which was the indie game that I made, um, which is long shipped and we're, we're just not going to talk about it again um I, I i'm still fond of that game even though it's it, it had its problems but that was where we first met because we were out on the road i actually i was thinking about this before we came on to record do you happen to remember where we first met i thought it might have been norwich gaming festival but i don't that would be my guess mm-hmm. that would be my guess maybe over wings, wings indeed. Right. um so yeah i i've I think for the past six years, um, I was constantly going out to showcase my game. Basically, I took my game anywhere I could. We worked on a game called Mau Mau Castle. Uh, it's a game about a flying cat dragon who chases rainbows, um, uh, inspired by the 90s and uh, games like Space Harrier and other great arcade games like that. And anywhere that would allow me to showcase my game, I would take it there. Um, we did over 65 events, and that's how I got to know a lot of the indie community by going and showcasing it, and hence why I met yourself and other, many others. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, 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 it was also a kind of a, a funny thing, I think, for a long time where you'd go to an event or you'd be talking with someone, and then they're like, oh, I met, I met Quang. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like everybody, like it's sort of, it's almost like a badge of honor. It's like, okay, right. Clearly, you've been doing this, like showing your game seriously because you've met Quang at some point because you had been everywhere. Um, and it, it was interesting just how many times, like, oh, have you been to other events? Have you met any other devs? And then, like, your name would come up. And then immediately, like, oh, okay, cool. Are you going to join the Quang? Right. Yeah, cool. That's great. Like, we're friends now. It's all good. Um, it's quite funny how those things turn out. So yeah, you weren't showing at EGX, which how how was that for yourself? I guess because it's such a it's such a mainstay of going to these things. Like when you're just a speaker, or even just heaven forbid, just a a regular punter coming in to check. Like it's it's a different vibe, I think, entirely. Hundred uh, um, percent. I got so used to going to an event to showcase my game you turn up early you go through the staff entrances you you set up your booth the day before and stuff like that it's, it's just these processes that you get used to doing and then you always have like a, a little base of operations to go back to yeah. your booth um but then to so this egx i was there to do a few talks uh with game dev london and also with uh on the barclays rest stage which was great um and apart from the talks i had nothing else I had to do. So it felt like I just floated around a bit. I went to see everyone and talk to everyone, catch up, but there was never any pressing thing I had to do. Yeah, I think I had, I had the same experience. I think maybe it was the last EGX before, so it was an EGX 2019, I think. It was in the Excel Center in, in London. I think I think you were showing something yourself and your brother. I was showcasing, yeah. Yeah. That was like that for me because I actually did a live AI and games panel thing and it was so weird because having to go in through the regular front door, like they, they still gave me like a pass because they're like, oh no, you're a speaker, so you got a complimentary pass. But it's like, it's so weird not going in through the side door 
going in early to set up. And I had the same thing of like, okay, I've done my thing. I'm just going around all the booths to find all the indie developers I know. Like, hey, how's it going? How's the game? Like, how's it been? what's the reception yeah. been like, et cetera, et cetera. And then maybe I should go and play something. Because, and I think this is kind of one of the funny things is like, if you've been to a lot of these events, you don't play anything. Like, you're... I, I, I distinctly remember going to a lot of them where it's the hour before the doors open to the public and your booth's running. You're like, oh, maybe I'll try the, the other games on the row or something. I remember going to Insomnia, I think, a couple of years ago and the the Ubisoft people were like really friendly and they were like, oh, do you want to come and play our booth before before it opens? And I got to play Mario and Rabbids for the first time. And that went from being, oh, I'm passingly interested. What is this Mario XCOM game to, oh my God, I'm buying this game. This is amazing. Because they were just like, oh, just play as much of it as you want until 10 o'clock or whatever. And then we'll have to force reset the console. I'm like, okay. Um, and I ended up sitting, playing it for like 30 minutes or something like that, which was a, which was great. <clears throat> uh, uh, yeah. I, usually, I usually find, for me, going to events was became uh, a way to meet other people, meet other developers, and catch up with other developers you haven't seen in a while. Because yeah. that's where you would be in the same place. Uh, lots of people and to the point where i decided every event we, i would go to i would try to get together with everyone and have a dinner for everyone who was showcasing because you spend the whole day just showcasing game talking to the public um it's just nice then you normally go back to your hotel room and then do it again the next day but i thought, I thought it would be nice for all the indies to get together and have dinner and chat about the day and how mm -hmm. things are doing um so i would generally try to make it so we would go out for dinner uh, i would book um, a restaurant for like 50 people and they're like we don't see 50 people i'm like well can you give us i don't know four tables of or like four eight? tables of, yeah it's like well, right now i can't remember I, I remember i remember going to one of those dinners with you i'm trying to think what year it was it was at the nec in birmingham and i think we took up like one half of the restaurant we just yeah. had like two big tables of like 10 or 20 or something we just like you know this side of the room was all game developers and it was great because i got to meet a bunch of people i didn't know either um so yeah i think that's always like, I think that's a, a real service that you've done, particularly for the British community, because like you say, like, like I said earlier, so many people know who you are because you've invested that time and energy in people and allowing people to get to know each other. Because let's face it, we're not exactly the most social <laughs> at times, I yeah. admit. Oh, dear. <clears throat> right. I think we're almost, it's almost time for us to get into the big subject of the day. But why don't we take a quick break and then we'll be right back after this. We're going to talk about size. A quick break from all the banter to take a moment to thank our patrons who support us here on the Branching Factor podcast. Without that support, we wouldn't have kicked off this fun new venture for us all to take part in. Don't forget that by supporting us on Patreon, you get to listen to each episode early and without all these pesky ads that break up the flow. Plus, you get bonus content and the chance to submit questions to us directly via the AI and Games Discord server and shout-outs for our top-tier patrons. It's all part of the package. To find out how to join, head on over to patreon.com forward slash AI and Games. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash AI and Games. Thanks once again for listening to us here on Branching Factor. And with that, let's get back to the actual podcast. And we're back. More right here on the Branching Factor podcast with Quang today as our guest co-host of the day. One of one of the one of the fantastic, frightful. I'm trying to think of another word that starts with F4. I don't know. Um 
But yeah, so we're going through each of these. We're hanging out with each of our co-hosts before we get into our what I think is going to be the Voltron episode where we actually combine into a giant robot and then it's just awesomeness in audio form, I guess, for, for, for 90 minutes or so. But yeah, Quang, you had a topic you wanted to bring to us today and it was about size. The size in games. What do, what, do, what do we mean? What do we mean when we're talking about size? Let's try and keep it PG-13. So what came up recently um, is the wonderful game Stray came out. And I know a lot of people love Stray, myself included. Um, but there was a bit of a, I guess, bite back in, in that people were saying Stray was too short. So that was, the, that was the cat game on... Is it on PC as well? I know it was on PlayStation. Yeah, I haven't it's had on a chance Steam to play it. and PlayStation, yeah. Right. Okay. And so how how long is Stray? Um, I believe they, they rate it about five to six hours, depending on how you play it. Okay. And so so the issue then was that that's not enough, essentially. Yeah, so the game itself, uh I think I should have checked how much it costs, but for the amount of money it costs, um they people wanted more game, which is lovely that they wanted more stray, which because it's a lovely game, which is great. But then they were looking at how much the game costs and how much game, how much time you get in the game, and is it actually worth your money? And we have this metric at the moment where uh, the more hours in the game, the more it's worth, apparently. Yeah, it's so I actually just looked it up. So Stray is currently twenty three ninety nine on Steam. I imagine it's probably a little bit pricier on the PlayStation Store, which what that will probably translate to about thirty thirty five bucks, I think, for our American friends by and large. Um, <clears throat> and so yeah, I think like you, the size of games is often this. <sighs> well, this is essentially the whole point of it, isn't it? It's like it's such a it's such an arduous personally i think conversation to have and i think no doubt you have opinions on it as someone who runs a micro studio which i think inherently also constrains the size of the games that you're making but um like for i guess for yourself like so i'm making a game that's like like actually this is the best way for me to think about it so you make micro you, you run a micro studio you inherently also then make micro games i guess and so how does that influence like the direction you take in designing a game and building a game? And what do you even think a little bit about that long term of like the you know players' value for money or like their investment in time and, and what have you, like in the context of this conversation with regards to Stray? Yeah, exactly. Um, so running a small studio means our costs are very different to a, a triple A studio. Um means I can only afford to run the studio for a certain amount of time before we need to make more money to make the next game. Um, I would love to spend 20 years on a game and make an incredible opus, magnum opus, which has a million hours of gameplay, but financially that's not going to happen. Yeah, so you've got to finish it, you've got to ship it, and then get on to the next one. Like Exactly. So on, I guess on that note, like... um. Like the last, the, the first Game Boy game you made, like what was the full development time on, on making that? So that was done in three months. The, the full thing? Three months. So the first game we did, um, well, I basically I took an old project from 1999 
which was actually three months back then. Um, I found that old source code and I thought, let's take this, let's update this from slightly more modern audience, finish it off, polish it up. And that's when an additional three months to get it done and ship that through the door. So does that three months then include the additional part of the crowdfunding, then actually getting all the, you were talking earlier about getting all the um, shipping materials and the packaging and then putting all that together. So was that also part of like the development time? What that three months, does that encapsulate all of that? Or was it a little no, bit? So, yeah, so I scheduled it. So the the development would be an actual three months uh, and then packaging and shipping would be a, a month on top of that. So you have to obviously make the, uh, release the gold version of the game and yeah. make normal changes because that's what, what, that's oh, what needs God. to be done. I totally forgot this is like an issue that you have to deal with because you're shipping an actual cartridge. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, just for anyone who's not familiar, like when we talk about a game going gold, it's we essentially that is like the master version, the, the, the definitive version of the game, which historically meant that was the last time you got to change it because in the case like Quang's doing here, you actually had to send it off to get, to get the cartridges printed. Now... We have to do it through thanks to digital distribution or whatever else. A game goes gold for manufacturing, and then this, the development team still work on it for two months, fixing all the bugs, and then they ship the post-launch update. And you know that's why no game, no game that ships nowadays doesn't come with a like twenty gig uh, update on, on on as soon as you put the, the the disc in the drive. Um, but oh god, I totally forgot about that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very different process. But you know when you're talking about games nowadays being updated. That's also part to do, you know, that also has to be factored in to the cost. Yeah. Because once I've done a game and it's gold and it's been shipped, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to invest any more money into that. And that's done for me as a project. But the games now require updates, require aftercare once the game's been released. Yeah. And that, there's a cost attached to that. Yeah, absolutely. Like I know um, shipping, when I shipped Sure Footing years ago, uh, like the game, I, I went gold. I'm trying to remember. I shipped that game in the spring, if I remember right. And I, I went gold in about February, March, and then I still spent two months on bug fixes. Um, try Actually, specifically in the Xbox version, because I did the Xbox version, we passed certification, and then I still did two two big patches prior to launch and then i did one post-launch patch because there was still bugs i was finding and i think a lot of that was just due to the scale and complexity of the game um that also i guess interestingly when you're dealing with a, a small team and in that case i was the only programmer like you don't have that much qa you don't really have anyone testing your game other than yourself um and so i guess you know coming back to the conversation a bit stray like how how do you perceive like when people think about size and like the length of time spent in a game? Like how do you perceive that? Given that a lot of your games, certainly the ones that you've that you've made that I've played, are designed to be you can play the entire experience in like you know two minutes usually two to three minutes. So how do you perceive that when you're coming to like designing a game for potential long term investment? Yeah, um, so I come from a very arcade background. Uh, and the arcades uh, has have a very different model in how games are, are approached because you're only there for a short amount of time, whereas the home market, obviously, you have as many hours as you want to put into the game. So you design games very, very differently. Um, if we talk about Stray and the game itself, I understand it was delayed multiple times. 
to add more content and then get more finished. Um, but every time you delay a game, there's more cost involved. Yeah, you have to pay. You know, you uh, we have what called a monthly burn rate, which is can be insane depending how many people you have and having to pay people to develop your game each month. And uh, every time you delay it, that's more cost to you. Um, and I understand that, uh, Stray was delayed over a year off my head. Okay. And that's a lot of money for a company to be putting out for a game to be continued to be developed. Um, and then people still aren't happy with the length of the game once that game's done. But you've spent more money putting into it. So do you put the cost of the game up to, to offset the time and money you've put into the game? Or do you hope to sell more units? Yeah, that's that's because that's the issue, right? If you're spending more time on the game, you got to recoup that somehow. And uh, so, particularly, Stray is developed by Blue Twelve Studio, but it was published by Annapurna Interactive. And so, you know, at, you're you know, given that you've actually got a publisher for your games now, like one of the problems you have to face, and I've on other game projects I've been involved in, we have this issue of we need to push development out a little while longer usually the developer is is has to then turn to the publisher and go we need a bit more money we need a bit more time to ship this and so then like existing publisher agreements if sometimes you're lucky you get a good publisher i guess who are sympathetic and and understand the process a little bit better who are like okay cool we, we actually factored that in we budgeted it a little bit that we might need a bit more lead time or there's some extra time to iron out bugs or push that extra bit of content towards the end whereas other times it's no, we'll, we'll, we've run out of money that we've got and that means we're running out of money to give to you so you need to ship it because we need to get the money back and they need to get their return on their investment um, not just like the money that you have to worry about it's also scheduling uh, your publisher or yourself um, you have to work out, work out the, the, the marketing for it and the window that your game has been put into if you don't release in that window um, you could clash with another game. Your marketing won't work. Um, and you know, people, come, uh, publishers pay upfront for uh, marketing windows with websites and and magazines and, and things like that. So um, sometimes, even if you want to delay the game, you can't. Yeah, um, particularly like I think uh, for people not familiar, this is often quite often when you see like at these big AAA games that ship, and then it's like, oh, but it didn't feel quite ready or whatever else. It's usually because they put tens, hundreds of millions of dollars into the marketing budget. So if Call of Duty says it's launching on like October 8th or whatever, Call of Duty is launching on October 8th, come hell or high water, regardless of, of the quality of the product. Um, I think Call of Duty is maybe a bad example here because Call of, because Activision can throw, well, Activision has thrown almost every development studio it owns at the Call of Duty franchise at this point. Although that said, I think um, playing the more recent Modern Warfare it, that's interestingly I haven't really played much Call of Duty in the last few years but that is the rockiest Call of Duty I've played coming out the gate in a long time it's still a great game it's still really good it's probably the best multiplayer they've done in a long time and as someone who's kind of a lapsed player I'm actually quite into it again but yeah that is it, it tripped on it tripped out the door a little bit um, to some extent uh and I guess for your, you said for yourself, you don't really have that luxury. I guess you're like, you know, we have three month window. We 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 got to do this. We got to get it out. Yeah. So you know, when you talk about bigger games and bigger companies, they they become juggernauts in terms. They can't be nimble. That if you want to change the course of a larger ship, 
it's a lot harder than a small speedboat, for example. Yeah. Um, and it's it's so difficult for people to understand that yes, everyone wants to make a great game. You know, no one goes into this industry <laughs> yeah, wanting to make no. bad products. But there, are, you know, there are so many factors, time, money, and things like that that will change what you can do and you know change the quality of your game because you have no choice in the matter yeah you you, you accumulate that uh, there's debt of so many types whether it's the the energy levels of the team excuse me the the literal money spent trying to produce it but also like tech debt you accumulate all these tools and systems that you've built to facilitate the design of a particular game and then it's like oh no we need to try and pivot a little bit and um, it's kind of interesting. I think a lot about. Um, I was having a conversation uh, with one of our production team um, earlier today. In fact, and we were talking about Sony's games and like how Sony is now just generating these big AAA games that are such size and magnitude, arguably too big to fail now because they throw so much money at them to make them appealing and get people out there. But they're also ridiculously long. Um, and. It was interesting, we were talking about God of War Ragnarok, which I haven't played yet, but I've, I've played the first one. And what the things that they were saying is that how it feels as if there's so many tools and layers and systems there to help facilitate you solving a puzzle because they've focus tested it into oblivion. And they've realized, oh, not everybody's solving this puzzle, but they've all spent $60, $70 now on this premium product. Actually, probably more than that in the US. I don't know. It's like, they're down to like 60 70 pounds here in the, in the UK. But they haven't passed, they don't know how to solve this puzzle. So they focus test like how all like different audiences so that it actually becomes a distraction down the line. You, you you are robbed of the enjoyment because the game is now trying to hold your hand to make sure you see as much of this game that they've built for you um, as possible. Uh, so I'm actually, I guess it'll be all right to talk about it here because by the time this airs, the episode will be out. But I'm currently working on an ep- on a video for The Last of Us Part 2 over on AI and Games. That game is stupidly long. Too long. This and uh, it it's fine. The story's interesting. The characters are interesting. I'm enjoying the frame, the, the setup, and everything else. But I've somehow played twelve hours of it, and I I took the liberty of looking online to see how far into the game I am, and it's like twenty five percent. Like, what else are you going to show me? Like beyond narrative, in terms of gameplay, what else are you going to show me that merits that investment? And on one hand, it's, you know, like you say, like people get snippy about Stray being a certain cost because it's only five hours. But on the flip side, I don't feel like, like sometimes I haven't played Stray, but I kind of like when a game respects my time and it goes, this is going to be a very focused six hour experience. You're going to get something out of this for the, you know, and if, if you feel that that's good value for money or not, that's up to you. But versus playing The Last of Us Part 2, where I feel like I need to take a month off work in order to... I won't have finished that game by the time the episode comes out. Let's let's put it that way. I think I I know for myself and and, and many other people, uh, time is now the more valuable asset, not money. You know, yes, things cost money, which is always going to be a problem for some people. Um, but so that's really bad. I, I don't know how that came out. But you know, it's for some people. You're either money rich and time poor. Or you know you have ton, tons of time but no money, um, and some people don't have both. It's 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 one of those things where you have to respect the player, respect the player's yeah. time, respect how much time they had to put into your game, and and 
entertain them. And that's it, what we are. It is quite funny because I think, um, uh, you know, like I said, like, I think The Last of Us, it doesn't fundamentally change that often. Like, it takes a long time to get going where you get to, oh, these are all the systems and tools that exist. Although, by and large, if you've played the first one, it's 80% the same game with some extra stuff in it. I find that an interesting comparison to, say, actually, probably one of the most talked about games of the year, Vampire Survivors. A game which, you've, if you play a minute of it, that you have understood the entirety of the Vampire Survivors experience. But the, it is compelling enough that people stick around and play it more and more and more. Like, I, I only discovered... I knew it existed, but I finally buckled and played Vampire Survivors about a month ago, and I did. Fortunately, I was ill, and I was off work for a bit, because otherwise I would have lost about two weeks. Um, it's a very... And I think that's kind of an interesting contrast, because that was like a single developer, unless I'm mistaken... Uh, originally when it started out and it's you build a very small game with a very compelling hook to it and then that allows players to invest more time in it if they want and it's also built in an interesting way because a lot of the expansions to that game are new characters new levels um new weapons which are relatively i think from a pr development perspective not to speak ill of the developer themselves but that's a relatively easier thing to do versus adding an entire new chapter to like god of war for example i think um i'm a big fan of the metric awesome per second <laughs> that doesn't mean your game has to be a roller coaster ride from start to finish awesome can come in so many different flavors it can be awesome uh soundtrack and awesome scenery uh awesome game design awesome characters awesome storytelling, um, but keep your players engaged. You can have awesome moments of quietness as well. You know, it, it's don't waste the player's time. Respect the player's time. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, thinking about that, is there any particular... I mean, I just kind of took a swipe at a lot of Sony's AAA games because I don't think they do respect the player's time in, in some regard. Um, I think it varies from, from game to game, but uh, have you got any particular... Uh, uh, culprits, I guess, that you would point the finger at. <laughs> um, my, my one I go to every time we talk about this is it's Red Dead Redemption Two. <laughs> it's a wonderful game, and it's bigger than the first one uh, for many reasons. But uh, the just sending me on fetch quests from one side of the map to the other side of the map at a very slow pace is painful. Um, that's just why so many games that have quick travel and and and. and once you understand, yes, uh, I need to get from A to B, don't waste my time. I respect my time. Um, and uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 just so painful sometimes. I, I, I was going to say, in a, in a similar nature, I often think that I think the way that games like Red Dead are built isn't to respect, it isn't actually interested in the players investing in the player or supporting the player because it's more we've got this cinematic experience we're trying to sell to you and you're going you're gonna to swallow it. Like I I understand some people love that stuff, but it's like, all right, when it takes me two minutes to get off my horse and park my horse, I'm like, this is getting in the way of the fun because I'm having to, oh, hang on. And don't get me wrong, I love my horse. I made an entire episode on AI and games about the horses in Red Dead Redemption 2. But it's like, oh, this is, you're just, you're dragging this out for the purposes of whatever cinematic vibe that you're trying to to reach versus, and then how much development time goes into that to achieve this some this thing that actually is, 
kind of robbing the player of time and not allowing you to focus on the, I guess, the, the core of the experience, I think. Um, God, yeah, that is, that is awesome per second, though. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to remember that. Exactly. So, you know, yes, you have, you can have slower paced games, which is fine. Um, but engage the player. Uh, if I have to get on and off my horse thousands of times while I play this game, I don't want it to take two minutes each time I do it. <laughs> like maybe, you know, it's cool. Maybe the first couple of times I do it and it's, oh man, this is really intricate. This is cool. But by the thousandth time of me getting on my on and off my horse, let me skip just it. Gonna drag. Or, or... Yeah, let me skip it. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, just have a quick get off and on and off. I, I don't know. Um, but that comes into respecting the player's time. How do you design around that? Um, but I think a lot of Red Dead Redemption 2, as you say, it's a game that wants to tell a story, wants to set a mood, which is, I yeah, understand. Yeah. And then they get to go back to their publisher and say, hey, our game is, I don't know, 100 hours long. But, <laughs> you know, quite a few of those hours is getting on and off your horse. <laughs> It's like four hours. It's just you getting on and off the horse. Um, I saw was it uh, was it earlier this year? Was it Dying Light Two came out? Um, the Techland did they go into hot water about this because they were advocating on social media like our game will take you four hundred hours to play, and it was you could tell there was a kind of an, an age divide uh, among the because a whole bunch of people were like oh yeah that sounds amazing, and everybody over the age of about twenty five going oh, <laughs> and it isn't I have by the way four hundred hours. <laughs> yeah, by the way, I played Dying Light Two. You can you can mainline it in like maybe 15 hours and yeah it's like okay there's just lots of extra and um, so this is this is something that is a bugbear of mine about size because i feel like if you have and open world games are notoriously bad for this in which they will pad out the experience for the sake of making sure there's something for you to do and then the thing is you discover very quickly there's only maybe five or six templates of that activity or, or it was five six templates of activities and then they're just repeated 20 times um you know looking at you ubisoft and i say that with a lot of love for a lot of those games you know i've quite i've actually been recently playing assassin's creed odyssey uh, and i quite still enjoy like far cry and what have you but it's like i don't need a 30 hour version of this i actually maybe just need a 12 hour version of this that's just really tightly scoped and really good um and then it's like, okay, well, if people really like it, then you could expand on it. But no, no, no. By the, the, the time, by the time you get to the end of like, so I played Far Cry Five, I think maybe last year, or the year before. But by the time I got to the, what I tend to find with those games is I really enjoy the opening eight hours as I get to try everything, and then the last eight hours is just oh, let's just go. I just want to get to this thing so I can make this happen and finish the game or whatever else. Because oh, we're going to do another one of these missions. Oh, for fuck's sake, right? Oh, we go <laughs> trying to go and figure it out. Like oh god. But that's yeah. the problem we're having. The, the, the now, as a consciousness, the, the the public and the media attach a value to how many hours in your game. <clears throat> I think more hours you have in your game, the more it's worth. Yeah. And, and I, I, it really frustrates me as a small developer. Like, I could pad my game out if you wanted me to do it. To, so I'd say, oh, our game is, is 50 hours instead of just 10 hours. But I would rather give you a ten-hour uh, roller coaster ride of awesome than give you a fifty-hour of meh. Meh. <clears throat> yeah, like even I think probably some of the better examples of that in in recent years is a lot of narrative-driven 
games where you know like uh, what remains of Edith Finch or something like that where it's like we, we know this only runs for six hours and you're gonna have a you're gonna have a good time with it or even um I think like Supermassive's uh, Dark Picture series which they're sort of horror games which you can replay them and have different outcomes and I think that's kind of an interesting way to create longevity out of it it's like this game actually only takes about four hours from start to finish yeah but you can replay it in different ways you get different outcomes and those are still big budget production actually the dark pictures ones are more or more um are meant to be a more budget version compared to like the quarry or um until dawn that they did on the ps4 but excuse me still they're, they're those are still expensive productions but they're quite committed to keeping it relatively short which i think is is good because otherwise it does it just it drags out and I mean, how many times do people does a big AAA game come out and you don't finish it? Uh, more than you know, it happens more than you and should what do you know? It, it, it's again, it's this perceived value in the game. Look something like Journey. Journey's a beautifully formed yes. game. Great example. Uh, it's a short, uh, what, maybe four hours or something like that. I, I think. Yeah, even. Um, you, you probably didn't do it faster than that, but I don't think Journey is a game that needs to be any bigger than it is. It's perfectly formed. Yeah. And probably to make it longer is a disservice uh, to to the product that they were trying to make and to the vision that they had for it. Um, yeah, it's... it's and, and those, I think, actually things like, you know, Journey was still a... Was a had a modestly sized team. It wasn't a huge team, I don't recall. But even games like Stray or things like the, the Dark Pictures games with Supermassive, those are going to have decent sized teams but they're still working on tighter smaller games and it, there is a weird thing about the pricing i think certainly because you talk about um there's well, two things like one all games seem to exist roughly within the 20 to 60 pound margin in the uk so like maybe 30 to 70 dollars in the us um but the the amount of content and this i think doesn't help the argument um about the, the length of games is that ultimately you're maybe paying $20 more and you're getting five times more game in terms of hours spent. Whether or not that actually is a better game, that's a whole other argument. But I think interestingly, you know, you're dealing with two games that are very different in size and scope and, and intent, but there's only maybe 10, 20 bucks difference between them. And I think that isn't, on one hand, that isn't helping with players' expectations. On the other hand, I don't really think I should be advocating that Call of Duty should be £200 every year it comes out. Although, to be fair, if you look at some of the special editions they put on the PlayStation Store and the Xbox Store, it's pushing towards £200. But that's one of the things. The, the, the teams it requires to make those games need to be paid. So yeah. um, I think, was it Sony recently put the prices... Up for their base game, yeah. So Sony's all their PS5 games are now seventy bucks or even yeah. sixty pounds, and the Xbox just announced they're doing the same thing uh, in in 2023. So if, if you look at back when I was a, a younger, much younger, <clears throat> back when I was uh, a lad, <laughs> back when I was a wee lad, um, I bought Street Fighter Two for my Super Nintendo, and oh, I yeah. paid sixty five pounds for this game to get it in on import, um, oh, wow. which. Apparently, that's back in 1991, so that's about £165 in today's money. So I spent £165 on a game that 
if you counted the minute, if it was advertised how it is today, the gameplay hours get through the mainline story. 20 is, minutes? And, yeah, a few <laughs> minutes. You know, even if you used every character, so it's eight characters, so mm. times by eight, it's still only a couple of hours. You could, If you were really good, you could do it in an afternoon. You know? <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, if we go through Street Fighter and we played it through with every character, eight players, uh, probably a, a few hours, you know, maybe an afternoon, as you say. Not very long. Yeah. But I paid £65 for that, about £165 in today's money. I love this game to pieces. Um, obviously, it has this two-player element where, where you can play against an, a human, another human player, and you can spend many hours into that. But when people say games are expensive now, pay £165 for a game that only has an afternoon's worth yeah. of advertised play uh, it's it's unbelievable yeah like i mean i got i got street i had street fighter 2 turbo on my super nintendo and i remember like you know a, a super nintendo cartridge would easily set you back 50 quid in like the early 90s and i, I still remember when legend of zelda ocarina of time came out that was 60 pounds it was more expensive and i remember having to argue with my parents like they're like, oh, that game's more expensive. Like, do you really want that? And I'm like, it's the Legend of Zelda. I must have this. Um, which, of course, time proved that I was right. Uh, but yeah, like, as you say, like, one, £50 was already here. It's actually, you know, like we say, it's, the, the difference in price isn't a huge amount compared to nowadays. But in terms of when you actually factor that into the actual economy at that time, um, when you account for inflation and everything and, and, and what have you, that's an awful lot of money. And it did mean... I mean, I come from a very working class background, so we didn't get a lot of games growing up. And so I find it is an interest. I think you have exactly the same issue with this. Like when it comes to people talking about, oh, but I paid 40 quid and I've only got a six hour game. Like I replayed the, sh I'm going to pardon my French. <laughs> I replayed the shit out of every game I got because I got three games a year if I was lucky. Yeah, you know? exactly that. Um, I grew up with ZX Spectrum. Uh, we bought games for one ninety nine and two ninety nine from the budget store. Uh, if we were lucky, we'd maybe get one full price game, which was ten pounds. Yeah, uh, a I used year. To, I had that on my Amstrad as well, like buying the cassettes for like, oh, that nine ninety nine. That's a, that's a push that one. <laughs> but you'd get it, and um, depending on if the magazines were uh, influenced or not, the game may not be as good as <laughs> as you had hoped. Uh, but you would enjoy it because you, you spent ten pounds on it, and that was your money. Yeah. Um, you know, it it's it's you know, you, you play through the whole thing. You know, if you did Street Fighter, odds are you played through all the Street Fighter with every playable character at some point because you needed to like my 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 weird claim to fame was I had F Zero X on the Nintendo sixty four. Fantastic racing game. Why don't they make more F Zero? That's a rant for another episode. But and no Mario Kart eight is not F Zero. Shut up. Um they I remember I played through that the Grand Prix on every every cup with every racer. And it took me tens of hours to do, maybe dozens of it. I don't even know how long it took me in, in truth because that was one of the three games I got that year, two games I got that year. And so it was, I think actually, yeah, I got F-Zero and I got Zelda in the same year and that was it. So that was all I played because... I didn't have multiple consoles. I sold my Super Nintendo and my entire collection of Super Nintendo games so I could afford a Nintendo 64. Uh, you know, it, it, I think the, on one hand, like the disposable income 
and I, I appreciate saying this right now, particularly in the UK and a lot of Europe, you know, things are more expensive. There's a cost of living crisis, particularly here in this country. But there is more disposable income. The idea of spending 40 quid on a new game. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit how many games I bought on Steam in the last month when I consider that story that I just told. Um, and I guess it also doesn't help, you know, there's a kind of a lot of aggressive discounting and kind of subscription services, games as a service. I think that all mires this, this conversation a lot to some extent as well. I think when, again, going back to when I was a kid, um, money was very, very tight. And yeah. uh, I, I'm not ashamed to, I am ashamed, but I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed, but I had to uh, do what I can to obtain games to play them. I'd buy the magazines, for example. The magazines will have demos, and some of oh, games on discs. tape. Yeah. So on, on tape and discs, uh, which is great. Um, <clears throat> you would copy games from your friends. Yep, yep. Um, I couldn't afford a full price game, so this is how we would obtain them. Um, otherwise, I would never actually probably ever played the games if I didn't copy them from my friends. Um, as a game designer now, obviously, I understand this is still a problem for people out there. So, you know what? If I'm not going to begrudge people copying my game, if that's the only way they can play it. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I would love you to be able to pay for it at full price, but we have this race to the bottom as it were for pricing because now there's so many games coming out to make your game seen and and get any sort of traction you have to lower the price yeah and i oh god i think the nintendo eShop is like a horrible example of this because the eShop in particular is always uh, you, you can always see some game that's been discounted. I think Nintendo are beginning to clamp down a little bit on this, but it, you know, there's always some game that's been discounted like every week down to like one dollar, and it's been at the top of this. And it's and the reason that they do that is because everybody goes, oh, I'll buy that for a dollar, and then suddenly it races to the front of the eShop because the eShop's discovery is abysmal. Let's be honest. Um, and so then you've got all these other games doing the same thing. It's like. And I did it. I did it when I, I launched my game. Like I put a game out, we put Sure Footing on Steam, and then it's like, how long till I take 30% off of it? Because you've got your day one sales, and then if it didn't kick off and become the biggest thing ever, which, spoilers for 99.9999% of indies out there, it ain't going to happen, you're then thinking, all right, when am I going to discount it to try and get a boost in sales? But then everybody's doing the same thing. So is is that is that going to work for you? Is it... Is, are you actually just going to end up not really getting much out of it because at the end of the day Nintendo decide to discount their games from 55 to 35 for a weekend and then everyone's like, oh, I'm just going to go and buy Fire Emblem or Mario Kart or whatever. Last thing, we talked earlier about um, Sony and uh, Microsoft taking, bringing their prices up to, to match the cost of development. But if everyone's racing the bottom to discount their games... There's this weird disparity of what is the value of a game. Uh, yeah. When things aren't priced correctly, the perception of the value of that thing disappears. Yes. When you go to buy, I don't know, a coffee, for example, uh, a, a barista, uh, you can pay anything from five pounds, ten, even up ten pounds for a coffee. Um, and then you can go down to a, a local cafe and pay a pound for a coffee. It's 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 a weird 
uh, perception thing where is are things worth what they're actually worth or is it only because that's what you want to pay for it and and also that's what the environment of the market is that's set yeah. for it i mean particularly uh, buying anything in london um you're immediately paying a premium because it's in the middle of london whereas you could probably get the same thing cheaper literally the same thing cheaper if you just didn't do it within the m25 uh, i think that's always a, a good example but i guess <clears throat> like i think that that is mired even further when you think about um you know games as a service so you get games like fortnite or destiny or overwatch or whatever all these and also like a lot of mobile games as well whether it's like clash of clans or uh you know candy crush and that sort of thing these are all free to play and you're then it's up to you how much money you invest in in those games and then even i think as well like playstation i forget what they call their game so there's xbox game pass and then there's micro was it playstation's equivalent playstation plus or whatever i don't i honestly don't remember what it's called because they announced it and i'm like ah, oh, that sounds rubbish and yeah. i didn't bother but that doesn't help the situation either because now you're getting access to lots of games for less money and so um you know particularly for yourself like as someone who runs up making smaller games and you're going right i'm going to sell this for 10 pounds people are going to go why would i spend 10 pounds on that when i can get all of these games i mean i guess maybe for yourself one of the things that maybe works to your advantage is the audience that you are targeting um has there been a difference in that because your older stuff was you were this was more general purpose you were aiming it towards the broader indie market whereas now you're working on game boy games has that made your life easier or harder because you're now dealing with a a particular audience who are invested in getting new games for that platform i would definitely say so the it's a much more laser focused uh approach whereas um the the audience is smaller but it's niche and it's more passionate about new games for that system so i don't have to worry about trying to use a scattergun approach to trying to attract as many people to, to, to the, get the game i can charge what the game cost me to develop now, i don't have to race to the bottom and say it's yeah. only a pound just so i can be seen i can say you know uh so i charge 10 pounds for the rom of uh our last game of game and uh, it was forty pounds for a box copy because uh, it's a physical release. Yeah. Um, and people were okay with that. Uh, and giving people the option to either buy a physical release or a digital release means I can cater for more people. Yeah. And a wider you know, um, and people's uh, different uh, situations. Uh, but now making games for the Game Boy, it just allows me to worry less about trying to appeal to everyone and worry more about making the game and making it a good game. Yeah, like, I mean, I don't, I don't, I get the impression that wasn't the intent. Like, I think we talked about this um, offline before that you were just trying to reconnect perhaps with like that era because you'd spent time doing Game Boy development in the 90s. Um, and so you were kind of reconnecting with that passion that you'd had then. Um, but it seems like, inadvertently it's also created a, a, a a more i don't want to use the word safe because none of this is safe but certainly a more um sus- potentially sustainable environment to work in because you're not struggling when you know oh you launch your game on steam for example you've launched your game next to 400 other games on steam whereas 
you know, if you're releasing something for the Game Boy, that doesn't strike me as a crowded market in 2023, you know? Um, yes, there's less games, and so visibility is much easier. But there's no chance of me selling a million Game Boy units yeah. versus a million Steam units. Um, so you take a gamble either way, and, and, and you balance it out, and you work out what risk is easier for you and i say i i went back into game work development to rekindle my love for making games and just going through the game with stuff it, it, at the end of the day being a smaller developer you do it for the love of it because you're not going to be a millionaire doing this um so it, it's finding the right price to make it worth your time that's what's important yeah and um, it's, it's interesting <clears throat> this is reminding me a little bit of when doing my own stuff it's like how much do you ship that for and i had i had this conversation in my head of like how much is my game worth it's like well i'd like to sell my game for 20 bucks a unit but um and you know my game i never made money back on that i lost money making that game and i think like a lot of indie developers and probably a lot of the indie developers we've met over the years as well you launch your game you get it on steam you maybe get it on a console if you're lucky you're you're going to make probably 10 times more money on the console, but then it's not exactly as if you made a huge amount of money on Steam to begin with. Uh, you know, that is the reality of it. And so you're, I, I, was, I was pricing myself down as I was trying to figure it out for launch. Like, how much do I ship this for? And I remember, like, interestingly, um, I don't know how much I can mention without breaking some non-disclosures, but there are certain discounting opportunities that are not available to me on a particular console that one of my games is on because of the price of that I set my game. Because it's too low, they won't let me discount it in certain sales because it would be too cheap. And so it's interesting, there's a race to the bottom, but they've set a lower bound on it. But then I was thinking about it, looking at it, because I've, I've seen some AAA games that it was like, that's going for less than what 50% of my game would be but they're allowed to, eh, it, it is what it is. Um, but yeah, it's it's such a, it's such a mess in in so many regards. And I think you know you're right to kind of look at the the stray example of is this argument actually conducive to anything? Um, I mean, I don't even know how you approach it or how you try and solve this. Like, what, what's your perspective on this? Is there a way out of this? Is there a way forward? Ultimately, I want people, uh, the public and the media to understand that we need to stop marketing games by the hours of gameplay that are promised in the game. That's not important. I would, as I said earlier, I would much rather have a five to 10 hour game, which is wonderful, and have a 50 to 100 hour game, which is just boring. Um, so, you know, when you look at reviews in magazines and, and and websites and they say, oh, this is a 50-hour game, you your brain automatically puts a value to that. Yeah. And I don't think that's an important metric that we should be measuring games by. And it is, you know, there are some games you can spend over 100 hours and it is just the core experience on loop. You're just replaying that thing because you... And, you know, it speaks to... You know, and this is kind of, I guess, part of the, the issue with the mass commodification of games is like you find something that you enjoy and you resonate with and then you invest the time in it. Whereas a lot of the time now it's it's 
it comes back to that disposable nature. You're not going to, you're not going to sit and replay an open world game 20 times. Maybe Elden Ring if you're if you're so inclined, but you know, even like I was going to say like Breath of the Wild, I think is a is is an interesting counterpoint to a lot of the arguments about open world design in contemporary games for padding. I I still spent 120 hours in Breath of the Wild over the period of about two years, and I had a great time with it because I enjoyed, funnily enough, I didn't use the fast travel. I I walked and rode my horse everywhere because I enjoyed the experience of traveling in that game. And so, and like Spider-Man, actually, on the PS4, I didn't realize, actually, I, I didn't know how to trigger the fast travel because I never used it. Um, because I enjoyed web slinging through the city. So if you could find that inherent joy in it, then that gives you, you know, it's like, uh, to me, that's the investment. You're like, right, well, that's me finding my value for money because there's something about this game that is really sticking with me. Um, and it's it's weird how people maybe get caught up in, I spent 20 quid on a f- five-hour game, but I've somehow, and but conversely, people will sink 200 pounds into buying skins on Fortnite. It's like, well, it was a free-to-play game, and so now they feel compelled to spend money, but now you've spent more money on what is... You know, you you do one game of Fortnite, that's it. You've played the experience. It doesn't fundamentally change in any massive way. And I've bought skins on Fortnite, I'm not going to lie. I haven't bought any in a while. I keep seeing all the new ones, and I'm like, no, I ain't going to do it. But as I was saying, Fortnite has a, a huge team behind it, making content for it. They have to be paid somehow. So, so if you're not getting if you're not going to get the cost in the sale of the game, you have to get find the cost you know the the, the money back in a different way. Uh, obviously, they've found a way to monetize their game and get everyone paid, uh, where the money doesn't come up front. And with games as a service, small companies, micro studios like myself, we can't afford to invest the time and energy and the money to do something like that. We would love to, but that's not something that's going to be feasible. Mm. I think I was going to say one flip side just to this. I think actually it's just important to point out from a developer's perspective, subscription services, as much as they're a pain, there is an inherent value to them as well. Because so think something like Game Pass, if you get a game accepted on Game Pass, you get an, an agreement. There is a publishing agreement that's established with Microsoft to allow the game to appear on Game Pass and they will foot the bill. They, you know, you are paid for, it's not like they go, okay, we're going to, wait until people have downloaded your game and then we'll, we're going to send you the check afterwards. The idea is that they say, right, well, we expect based on similar metrics and, and what, what your kind of game is like in the scale of your game, which is also an, an interesting bartering situation. They'll say, we think your game is worth this, ergo we will pay you this amount. And particularly for indies, that is such a huge thing because one of the biggest things you're trying to do is just break even. Um and I know a few devs who have had their game appear on Game Pass and they were like, that was huge for us because we made more money having the game on Game Pass for like two months than we did the whole time it was on Steam. And you think, your game came out on Steam three years ago. They're like, yeah, but we made more money just having it on Game Pass for two months. Which is is a problem because on one hand, it's great for them. They've made their money back. They're They're feeling a bit more financially stable. But it comes back to that argument now of, all right, well, people can just jump in, play their game for 10 minutes and go, meh, well, it's fine because I paid five, six pound or whatever it is for the subscription service. I don't have to worry about it. Um, And I guess it's funny thinking about that. That is a big change in, I think, cultural attitudes and behavior around games. 
like we were talking about 100%ing Street Fighter. Um, you don't do that now. If there's a game that you don't like, you just you drop it by and large because there's so much in the market. Um, by com- maybe not in the Game Boy market. I, I have no idea how competitive the Game Boy market is, but certainly on other platforms, you can just drop it and go and play something else. Uh, you know, I, I, I like many other people have a Steam library full of games that I've never played. I and purchased them. You never will. <laughs> on sale. And yeah, it's. We, we live in a different time where the choice of games we have is, is, is humongous. Um, it's, it's tough because I want developers and artists and creators to be paid what they're worth. I want them to be paid fairly yeah. for their time. Um, but we all like a deal. You know, we all like to hear, oh, we managed to get a game for half price or, you know, a pound or whatever. But the games I've enjoyed the most are the ones I've paid fairly for. Because mm-hmm. you know, I've heard about it from either the word of mouth or something like that. Uh, and people said, this is great. You need to get this game. Oh, it's currently... At- I don't know, 50 pounds. Do I want to spend a game on that? But no, it's amazing. You need to pay 50 pounds for it because it's really worth getting. And that's a fair price. I could have waited in ages and ages for the price to drop and, and maybe it would drop at one point and I could afford it for less. But people have encouraged me to go get it. And you know, this is why reviews are so important and word of math is so important. That um, the recommendations are what yeah. give the game a value because you don't know until you play it. Yeah, yeah, and 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 particularly, I, I, there's a handful of reviewers that I pay attention to because I think, oh, like you, your sensibilities kind of align a little bit with mine. But yeah, it's usually like, um, listening to others, like what's the word of mouth, and particularly around around other developers. I often when they say, oh, this thing's doing something really impressive, it's worth checking out. Like one of the things I've started doing, and I'm being far more conscious of this because I was talking about Game Pass. If I find a game on Game Pass that I really like, I will go and buy it, and it might even be. I've done this a couple of times where I am going to hundred, I percent it, or I completely finish the game on Game Pass, but I go buy it on Steam or Switch just so I can. Be, I gave them money, because um, and and also then it's it's actually quite self. It's it's kind of a cheeky thing because then I'm like, if I ever have an, a, re, a justification to play it again, I have to start from the beginning because I'm playing it on another platform. But this is a mentality I got into, or even just a game that I play for five minutes and go, oh god, this is good, but this is not the plot, like. Um, actually, so Vampire Survivors is one of them. The other one was Dead Cells, where I played them both on Game Pass and went, this is not the platform to be playing this on. And I immediately stopped playing it, booted up. So I think I bought Dead Cells for the Switch and I bought Vampire Survivors on Steam. And it's just, right, I am going to buy it for these platforms because, one, I feel that's better suited, but also I was like, I am more than happy to go out and give them my money because I've played enough of it to go, oh no, this is really connecting with me. Um, and yeah, those are interestingly both relatively small teams. Well, certainly Dead Cells has got a much bigger team than Vampire Survivors because Vampire Survivors was like one person for a significant proportion. But those are also games that actually use a lot of procedural random elements as well to kind of extend gameplay and it's kind of funny that we've been talking about the size of games where like quite often and i've done this literally did this where the solution for a lot of indie developers is they do roguelikes or anything that's kind of procedural generation based because it not to say it pads the content but it enables for more content to be put in the game interestingly i don't think i don't you've never done that in any of your games have you you've you've been 
quite focused on like I'm, that distilled experience. Yeah, I'm quite staunch believer in in, in handcrafting the experience for the player. I I would again uh, much rather design ten great levels than have an AI trying to design uh, fifty levels. Um, not that I'm saying the AI couldn't do it. <laughs> uh, I just think it's more of a, a, a conversation between you and the player as mm-hmm, a designer. Yeah. You're you're weaving a narrative through the gameplay, through the levels. Yeah. Um, whereas um, having the AI do it, it would feel more like a freeform jazz, I guess, as opposed yeah. to this this, this um, <clears throat> quick short pop I don't know, pop song, even um, you know, a three minute pop song. Um, not saying that people don't enjoy freeform jazz because. I some people do dabble in it. I think people do, you know, it's 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 each their own. Um, but my design philosophy is come comes from um putting the right things in the right place. Again, giving the right awesome per second. Yeah. Having a moment of quiet just before you hit the boss level, uh, and then oh. just blowing the minds of the bubble. It's so beautiful, you know, it, and you, you you make the roller coaster ride and, and you you tailor it to the game and to the player. And for me, that that's something quite magical. Uh, the, the more you, the more you be talking about that, the more I'm just thinking. I, I'm seeing that now so much more. Going back and thinking about some of your other games, and just you know, um, particularly with the the beats in Mau Mau Castle uh, and things like that, where it is you could you can see that that care and that attention to detail, and it is. It's, I think you know, on the flip side, of someone who has built games that are predominantly procedurally generated. You do speak to that that one. It, it it runs risk of losing its soul, of losing its identity because, um, you are you're kind of just. I was going to say running in place, which would be ironic given I made an infinite runner, but you know you're you're kind of you're you begin to end up just creating something that it's just iterating on itself, and and critically one of the hardest parts when you're doing that sort of thing is hiding the seams. Of, of what it is as you've stitched it all together and then interestingly like does the player care when they start to spot the seams or is that actually something that they find compelling and um, some people do some people actually enjoy being able to see oh right that's how that's coming together because then that actually helps them internalize an awful lot of stuff and they learn an awful lot about how those games work and what have you but yeah i don't think we're going to solve this tonight sadly um maybe in another episode maybe in another episode I'll tell you what, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll work towards getting this episode out the door and to a close. Our work here on the Branching Factor podcast is made possible thanks to the good folks who support us on Patreon. As you might know, me, Tommy, the host here of the Branching Factor podcast, I run the AI and Games YouTube channel. I talk about how artificial intelligence works in video games and how AI research is empowered by the use of games and AI in Games has been supported by our Patreon community for several years now and it's thanks to them that we receive sponsorship that helps me and the team do more including spending time with my friends right here on the Branching Factor podcast. Supporters on Patreon get access to a whole bunch of content for the Branching Factor podcast. You get to listen to episodes ad-free and even get to listen to them early before they go live to the wider world. Plus, you could submit questions to the team here on our Discord server, have your name read out in our producer credits, and even get bonus content that doesn't get published elsewhere. To find out how to join, head on over to patreon.com 
forward slash AIN Games. That's Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash AIN Games. And a special thanks to all of our patrons for their continued support of everything we're doing right here on Branching Factor. And we're back. There we go. We had a quick breather. Um, but yeah, coming back to, you know, I think just to wrap up everything um, that, you know, Quang that you've brought today, I think critically, stop complaining how long games are. Is that the, what's what's our takeaway? What's our takeaway from today? Well, I, I mentioned that before. I, I Basically, I want people to stop measuring a game by how many hours it has. Um, it's not a good measurement of a game's worth. Uh, yeah. I remember going to a publisher and a publisher, even the publishers will ask me how many hours in my game. And it's not, you look on like Super Mario Land. Super Mario Land is a 30 minute game uh, on Game Boy. You pay from, you can get through the whole game in 30 minutes and uh, it's still a wonderful, wonderful game. Uh, it was one of the first Game Boy games out there. So it, they were still finding what a Game Boy game was and, and what it should be. But if you were told this game only 30 minutes, you would think this is not worth my money. It's not worth my 30 pounds, whatever it was to buy a Game Boy game back then. Yeah. Um, so I want people to stop measuring and quantifying a game's value by, by I mean, the hours. Look at it's awesome. You know, awesome per second. Look at how, how enjoyable it is. Look at the recommendations from other people. That's how you should value a game. Awesome. Awesome per second. I think that is, the t- they may have to just call this episode awesome per second. I think that might be the trick. It also makes the episode sound really good. Um, you know, f- funnily enough, the thing that it came to me while we were, just as we're moving towards wrapping this up, is in f- other entertainment medium, we don't have the same problem. Like, films can be 90 minutes or three and a half hours long, and we charge the same ticket price. Uh, and then so- actually, funnily enough, in most movies, we're complaining they're too long now. Um, you say that. Uh, I remember reading uh, when they announced Venom 2 coming out. Oh, it yeah. was going to be a 90-minute movie. Dot on the dot. 90 minutes, exactly. And we had gotten used to watching Marvel superhero movies where they're two hours plus easily. And you get to a, a feeling that that's how long a movie should be because that's what the current trend is. Yeah. And when, people, when they announced Venom 2 was going to be 90 minutes, people were complaining it's too short. Like I would much rather have a ninety-minute movie that was bang on, and it got for me Good, from A to yeah. B, and I enjoyed it again, awesome per second. It's it's, it's funny because I think actually if you know we kind of grew up in the kind of uh, I was a nineties kid I guess by and large. I grew, born in the eighties but largely grew up watching movies in the nineties. Most of them are about an hour and forty-five, an hour and fifty. It's, it's very rare to have a two-hour-plus movie in in those days. And then I think it's funny because now comparatively you're getting. Uh, far too many of these things are three plus hours and it's like actually i'd rather you can we just have less movie that would be i'm happy to pay the same amount of money for less movie or you know it's not like oh yeah we're not going to pay 70 dollars, but you're gonna because the film's an extra two hours longer or something like that you know Zack snyder's justice league cost you 120 bucks to go and watch which i haven't i haven't nah <laughs> I, I don't have the energy i didn't think the original justice league was good but then i didn't really like most of other Zack snyder's films it's like yeah, we don't need three hours for you to tell me that Batman and Superman have fell out anyway. But um, yeah, awesome per second. I think that's the big takeaway. So wrapping up for today, I guess we're fresh into 2023 when this episode airs. Not quite when we recorded it, but <laughs> looking at the year ahead, like for yourself, Quang, what's, what are you jazzed about? Is there any events you've got lined up already? Um, games coming out, etc. cetera? Um, so I guess when it comes out... Um 
it's all the same events. I, I enjoy going to the events. I enjoyed going to EGX, Eurogame Expo. It's great. Um, we have WASD in London now, which is a wonderful event. Uh, anything that's indie focused, I, I, I enjoy more just because that's the era I'm in and the space I'm in. I enjoy catching up with people. Uh, Gamescom is always wonderful to go to. Uh, I've that's never, in Germany. I've never, I've never done Gamescom. Never mind. Oh, you to need to go. To that. You need to go. Um, but any big event where I get to hang out with other game developers and talk about games, I, you know, it's, it's, it's my love. It's my passion. Um, develop, for example, as well. Developers is probably one of my favorite events of the year where I get to meet other game developers and, and catch up with them. That's just getting, it's, I'm big on getting the community together. And I guess, I mean, probably, I think you were already doing that a little bit this last year, um, but certainly I think 2023, I don't want to use the phrase we're returning to normal because I don't think that is reflective of, of the situation, but we're moving more into a scenario in which it is more palatable for people to go out and, and do stuff and maybe reconnect with people. And, you know, certainly, like, like I said, we, we caught up at, at Develop um, last year and I was, I, that was the first event I'd been to in a long time and I was very sceptical about going to begin with because, you know, they're not the healthiest of environments. Like you tend to come away from a game event, usually maybe you've got a sniffle or something, you pick something up from someone. Um, I think, flu is a phrase for a reason. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and I think it's a little bit different, I guess, going to developer events a little versus, say, like public trade, public show events, because usually they're a lot worse. Um, you know, the amount of times I've came back with a cold after doing EGX or insomnia or something like that. Ugh. Um, but yeah, I think I've, I've been quite sceptical, but I feel like maybe this is the year people are going to engage a little bit more and participate. And I'm I'm excited as well, just because I haven't seen so many people in people that you took for granted. I, I was talking about this, I think, in a, in a completely other space not that long ago, but um, I was at an academic event. Uh, when was that? I went. Yeah, it was in the summer right before develop actually it was a couple of weeks before develop and it was interesting chatting with in fact um like mike cook who's one of our other co-hosts who's going to be on an episode shortly we're talking about how we're so used to seeing each other every few months and then we don't see each other for two years and you think am i ever going to get to do this again but that is the scary thing for me it's like oh am i ever going to see all your beautiful faces <sighs> so yeah um when is I was going to say the next event? Is it WASD? Is that the next one on the probably docket? gonna be WASD? Yeah. Yeah. When is that? I'm gonna have to look that uh, up right now. It's March, end of March. Yeah, because it takes over what used to be EGX Res, right? Indeed. Um. Yeah, thirtieth of March to the first of April. It looks like oh, it's over in Brick Lane in London, so it's no longer yeah, the, the... A bit the uh the brewery now, the Truman Brewery. Ah, cool. Interesting to see. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to try and see if I can turn up to that. I guess, actually, um, oh, wow, hang on. I need to do the math now a little bit. Because um, <laughs> I was going to say my first event of the year is probably going to be GDC. Um, so I'm going to the game developers. Yeah, oh, God. Yeah, that's that's the week before. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, just for, I was going to say, actually, for the audience, just so you, in case you're not familiar, I'm on the advisory board to the AI summit for GDC. And I've been doing that for three years. I've actually been helping organize the talks at GDC for three years and I've never went. Cause one, 
it's very expensive. It's prohibitively expensive because you got it's it always runs in the Moscow Center in San Francisco, so you got to fly out for there, and that's not a, that's not a cheap thing to do. I had to save up my pennies because I had to book my flights and everything early, so I could get them relatively cheap. But also, pandemic, etc. You know, it's it's GDC is like is like develop on steroids. It's <laughs> so much bigger. So on one hand, I'm very excited to go. On the other hand, I'm also like, oh god. Am I going to turn up in a hazmat suit? Like, yes, let's talk about games. Um, little germophobic, I think. I'm, I'm, it, again, I get it from my partner. Uh, I think that's what it is. But no, I'm very excited uh, for the for for what's coming up. Um, any games? Anything that's on your? I was going to say because you don't play an awful lot of contemporary games. You're you're very much um, as you can see. Actually, for our audio listeners, uh, you're you're denied this, but certainly for our, our, our visual. Uh, um, audience, you can see there. You've got all these. You've got arcade games behind you. Like you're very much invested in classical stuff, um, and they're not. They're not yeah. even seeing like your real collection either. No, um, I'm a big fan. Obviously, I'm currently in the in the uh, home. What's called the homebrew market for consoles. Yeah, uh, making new games for old systems, and that it's a thriving industry at the moment uh, and growing rapidly. So. I'm always interested to see the new games that are coming out running on the older systems. Is there anything coming out that you've you've got your eye on already, like on Game Boy or Mega Drive, other than of course your own wonderful stuff? Nope, can't think of anything. I put you on the spot. My mind's on blank. Yeah, can't think of anything. Right. Well, be sure to follow you on Twitter because no doubt because you're always out there pushing stuff anyway. Um, Gonna say, it was funnily enough, I was trying to think about this in advance, and it's like I'm actually, I haven't really paid attention because interestingly, I play a lot of modern games about a year or two behind because I wait and find out how they work, and then I play them because then they become a YouTube episode. So um, <laughs> I was like, what's actually coming out next year? And I don't, I had to actually Google it to find out. Um, I was going to say probably Zelda is is the thing. You know, Tears of the Kingdom comes out in May, so I'm up for that. Uh, was it recently? Um, so they announced the Castlevania DLC for Dead Cells, which I was like, ooh. Um, actually, I did want to give a shout out specifically to a game called uh, Trepang 2, which is a relatively indie project. Hang on, I'm going to bring it back up on my Steam page because I've got it here. It doesn't have a release date yet. Um, it's developed by Trepang Studios. It's actually been published by Team 17. It's basically a modern version of Fear. It's like that kind of style of first person shooter i didn't find out about it until um they did i think they did a demo uh and they put that out and i played that and it was like, oh my god that's amazing and um so yeah it's it's they're still in development but um actually they had a they delayed it uh, just a couple of months ago and they put out an announcement on steam but looks awesome um particularly if you like that style of shooter from what like, the early mid 2000s so that's probably that's probably i've got my eye on that Got my eye on that. Other than that, like you say, wait until what everyone else tells us. Wait to hear from everyone else. So yeah, shall we? Shall we wrap this one up, Quang? Have we? Let's do that. Let's do it. So yes, thank you very much. Uh, first of all, to yourselves for checking out this episode of Branching Factor. Special thanks, of course, to Quang for coming in to join me Thank today. Um, where can people? Where can the people find you? Where will they find you on the socials? Where should they go? Um, so best to find me on the uh, social medias, the Asobi Tech. That's the company we run, A-S-O-B-I 
Tech, T-E-C-H. Um, Sobi is the Japanese word for play. Tech is the English word for science, whether science or play. Um, uh, Sobi Tech on all the social medias, except TikTok. Except TikTok. <laughs> we're all, we're all too, I was going to say we're all a bit too old for TikTok, but I literally <laughs> just started a TikTok, um, which nice. I'm not very good at it. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just posting clips from my own videos on TikTok, and apparently that's kind of working for me. But yeah, and for myself, if you ever want to catch me on anything, I am AI in games uh, on, I've got my own Twitter, Mastodon, TikTok, YouTube, critically, because you should be, you should be following that if you aren't already. But yeah. Um, by all means, reach out to us. If you have any questions for the podcast, uh, just a couple, first of all, reach out to us on our socials, but also you can email us at branchingfactor at aiandgames.com. That's right. There's already an email address. I had it all planned and set up. And of course, as well, if you join our Patreon, that's aiandgames.com forward slash Patreon, you can head on over to the Discord server and in this dedicated podcast area, there is an area for you to ask questions and post them to us. And we'll get to them in a future episode. Who knows, we might do a couple of bonus things just to circle back to some of these conversations because we're keen to hear what y'all what y'all think. But yes, thank you very much for listening. I hope you've all had a great time and stick around. Well, actually, don't stick around. Come back another time for another episode of the Branching Factor podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye. The Branching Factor podcast is hosted and produced by me, Tommy Thompson, with support from Anne Sullivan, George Osborne, Mike Cook, and Quang Yun. Our theme music is provided courtesy of Ben Ridge, and the logo and thumbnail are as thanks to Helen O'Dell. Special thanks to Shraddha Gumta and Phoebe Trigg for their additional production support, and of course, to all of you out there listening. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Branching Factor. Wherever you are in the world, be sure to stay safe, have fun, and we'll be back. <laughs>